Hello and welcome to Two Old Chuffs, A Tale of Two Hospices. I'm Tamsin Thomas. And I'm Gina Stone. And today we're going to be joined by our medical director, Dr Deborah Stevens. I, I'm trying not to make you sound old now, but Deborah's about I to am retire. Old. <laughs> Hello. about to retire. Um, but we didn't want to let you go without capturing all those, well not all of them, we'd be here forever, but some of the memories that you've got from 27 years with us, yes, but also years before oh, that I've as well. I've worked in Cornwall since 1982, so, so um, things look very different now to how they looked all those years ago. Well, take us back then to 82. So when I first came as a student in 1982 to... Um, what was Trelisk Hospital at that time. There was Trelisk Hospital um, at the top of the road and then there was City Infirmary um, in the middle of Truro and um, we had to bike between the two. And then when I came back as a junior doctor um, and, and as part of my training, I was part of the arrest team, cardiac arrest team, and we used to have to go down to City Hospital for the arrests, and once I had to go to St Clement Veen, which is the other side of Truro, for, a, for On your arrest. Bike. No, in a car by then, because I wasn't a student. <laughs> but, but, but now, you know, that is beyond thought, because one, how would you get through Truro to St Clement Veen in anything under half an hour? But, but you know, the, the concept, that you know we have now which is everything's on tap it's there and if it doesn't happen right now it's not good enough is just kind of so different to how it was and I would say they gave good care then and it was what people expected but it bears no relationship to how things are now. I think people's expectations are different aren't they now as well with Google and you know it's so easy to search for your own symptoms and put them right yourself and so actually I think the expectation on um, our medical colleagues is is hugely different i think it is massive and 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 what people expect of themselves is massive and and we look now if you just look back so so when i was a medical registrar um at trilisk um i was one of four medical registrars and in those days we just looked after all the medical patients so that was anybody who wasn't a child uh, a lady giving birth or a surgical patient we looked after all of them and there were four of us and we did a one in four on call and when we were on call did the consultants ever come in in the middle of the night no they didn't so we were scarce and thin on the ground and you know it was hard work in those days and you look at the Trilisk site now well Cornwall Hospital has changed beyond all measure so all the bit that's 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 there that's up the hill now that used to be hill and that was where the helicopters, the seeking helicopters landed. And when we were, we had to rush up the hill and there were trees at the top of the hill and wait there for the helicopter to land if we were getting critically ill people in. And where the medical school is now was tennis courts. And that's where we used to play tennis. And well, um, in your spare moments between our spare one moments. and four. And, cool. and, and most, most fascinating of all, maybe or maybe not, is that when we came down as students and we had student accommodation on the Trilisk site, we were in Bedruth and House, which is now where the executive team are. <laughs> Fantastic. So how was the hospice when you first started then? So there was a hospice at Mount Edgecombe, um, but there wasn't a hospice at St Julia's and the, 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 the kind of palliative care at St Julia's started really as a, uh, a recognition that people didn't want to travel all the way from Penzance yes. to Mount Edgecombe because at the time that Mount Edgecombe was opened, 
I think they had 17 beds and then they went up to 21 and then they went back down to 16. But the thought was that they would be the hospice for Cornwall. But people just live too far away and they weren't going to travel all that way. And so they decided they wanted to run a satellite unit in the West. And Mount Edgecombe Hospice, as it was then, provided a third of the costs. And Macmillan provided a third of the costs. And the nuns who ran St Michael's Hospital as an independent hospital provided a third of the cost to, to start St Julia's at that site. And when St Julia's started, it was started as four beds in the glass balcony off the surgical ward at, at St Michael's. Amazing. And how did you get involved then? Had you set out to work in palliative care? No, I got I no intention of working in palliative <laughs> care. But then I think lots of people then didn't know what they were going to do. Mm. So you just kind of went along and took opportunities as they came. So I was married to somebody who definitely was going to be a GP and definitely was going to be a GP somewhere near the sea because he came from the Channel Islands and we spent a lot of time training in Cornwall and I got to the point where I'd been a medical registrar and I'd rotated around all the specialities at RCHT mm. and I either had the choice of... <clears throat> leaving the county to train to be a consultant but have a con- uh, husband based in the county so kind of a long distance relationship or stop and and do something in the county and after I'd kind of done all the medical registrar jobs I did go sideways and I was um I worked in the oncology and haematology department and I also helped look after children with malignant disease so 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 I did that for a few years as well um and and then I had a baby, and um, there were other things going on at RCHT at that point that meant that um, I didn't want to stay working there because I had a family and I had a husband who by then had a full-time job. Um, and they were advertising for somebody to spend four mornings a week um, <laughs> supporting the patients in the hospice at St Julia's because up till that point, the patients there, four of them, had been being looked after by the local GPs who would take it in turns to pop in for half an hour in the morning and they had no other medical input than that. And so I uh, said, yes, I'd be happy to come and do four, four mornings a week and I thought I'd do that for a little while and then I'd go back and do something else. Oh. And here I am. <laughs> and like everything. <laughs> like everything. <laughs> you never wait. It just develops. Goodness um, me. But, but actually, you know, when I, when I trained as a, as a medical student, we had one afternoon's visit to St Joseph's Hospice in the East End of London. But actually, palliative care wasn't a big speciality. You know, you look at how it's grown and how important it's become since then. But that wasn't a speciality that people went into. Um, it is a speciality now. And, and actually, I liked it because, for me... It was like general medicine used to be. So when I was a medical registrar, yes, we were on a chest firm or we were on the neurology firm, but actually we looked after everybody with everything. And so we were all generalists, but then had a particular interest in. And if you look now, everything is speciality based. And the only two disciplines that are really generalist now are palliative medicine and care of the elderly. And in terms of variety and scope, palliative medicine trumps care of the elderly because we have people with acute surgical emergencies, broken legs, psychiatric illness. We're looking after everything. And so the job satisfaction and the range is huge. And okay, so that's what I that's what I loved from a nursing perspective yeah. as well, actually. I didn't want to be shoehorned into one specific area. For me, the, the joy was about 
having a little bit more time yes. um, and also being able to look after the family and recognising the impact that all yeah. of those little bits and pieces had on the family and um, I think it's that making making the difference it, it in is. a bigger and, area. And as a, and as a doctor, you know, to have the time to look after people properly is, yeah. is fantastic. Um, and, but, but also, if we all put our hands on our hearts, there are bits that we do every day that we know we've done hundreds of times a day. So when you're talking to somebody about whether they're dying, it might be the thousand and somethingth time I've had that conversation. Well, more than that now. But actually, it's the first and only time that this family yeah. and that person are having the conversation. So, so what you do, um, if you work in a very narrow field, is the same very quickly. And the only thing that's different other people yeah and and that's what's so fantastic about and why I've loved working in the hospices and and, and of course I've, I've worked across the care settings in the county but why do I like walking in and out of the hospices and seeing people in the hospices what am I most proud of and it's that and it's not because I'm proud of what I do but I'm doing exactly the same in the hospices as I'm doing if I saw them in a community hospital or if I saw them yeah. in a hospital but it's everybody else who's doing the little attentions to detail the things that make the real difference so when people appreciate hospices it's it's more than the sum of all the parts that people are offering and it's fantastic but what we need is a, a thousand of you going around telling people because still those old myths which you can bust so easily exist don't they you need enough people who can do that but you don't necessarily need thousands because actually if you look back over the years you know there was a time maybe 20 years ago where where actually what was being said in healthcare circles was you were lucky if you had cancer because you automatically got easier access to palliative care than if you had another diagnosis and I can remember having a, a roaring row with a, a cardiologist in for a national conference once who who said to me well I can't ever get any of my patients into the hospice because you only look after people with cancer and I said to him how many patients have you referred and he said one and I said how many have you got in or he said one and I said so 100% admission rate most people <laughs> would give their IT for that and you can only start complaining if you're if you're referring hundreds and you don't get them in and 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 actually what what we have is 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 a speciality that has grown but actually the bottom line is that that what we're delivering is what everybody wants and should expect for themselves so is that specialist or is it just really good care and then how many specialists do we need to do that because if it's going to be there for everybody then can we afford it if it's specialist delivered? And the answer is no, of course not. So you need the specialists for the people who need the specialists, but then you need the ethos and the culture and the resource that's generalist for everybody. And there is where it gets tough, isn't it? Yeah, Here it we are, we're a charity providing this, not charging anyone for it. Of course. We could go down that dangerous road now that says, should we? Or, or should the NHS be doing that? Well, if we only provided what the if we only thought it was our job to provide what the NHS provided, that would be a miserable way forward, wouldn't it? Because um, one, charities aren't supposed to to be replacing statutory provision, but two, when when people do things for us, when they give time and come and volunteer, when they come back and work for us, when they donate goods, when they when they 
leave money in their wills. They're leaving it for a concept, aren't they? And it's perhaps a concept of what it's like in the hospice and what the building is. It, I think it's also, it's, it's those people, isn't it, that have used the service and their families that, that, that actually are, are busting those myths. Absolutely. And, and, and so, you know, we could offer a platinum service, but yeah. actually most people don't want a platinum service and they don't need a platinum service. So, so our responsibility for the people who believe in what it is we do and want to support it and continue it is that we get the best value we can from the time and the effort that people give us and the money that people give us but what we also know probably is that people are giving us money because they think and then when I need it I can go in the hospice and then you think how many people die in Cornwall a year how many people get into the hospice so are we saying that if you don't get in you get nothing or is our responsibility as a charity to provide something even if you don't get into a bed in the hospice and I think that is our responsibility. And I think looking forward to the next 40 years, actually, that's that's absolutely, you know, the, the, the way that we'll be looking, yeah. I think, from a strategy is how we can partnership work, work with others, look at our reach. Yeah. Um, and our, our reach has always been more than beds, but actually we need to be a bit more overt about yeah. that, I think. Really. So the specialists like me, um, our, our role and our function is to absolutely know what the best care looks like, yeah. so that we have that as an ideal yeah. and then provide the expertise for the people who really really need it who've got really difficult pain really difficult distress or, or symptoms but then it's to support other people to develop the skills that mean that they can deliver it on a generalist level so so there's never not going to be a need for specialists but that's not the same as saying specialists have to do everything and also, there's that sharing of knowledge, isn't there? Because, oh, you yes. know, I, I don't know what palliative care will look like, and I'm not the expert uh, in this, but I know that you're both quite often saying more and more people want to die at home if they can, but surely that means we've got to share knowledge, uh, advice, uh, open conversations to, to help people cope with that at home? Of course. Um, our, our role, I think is is to provide what people need and it is quite difficult to predict that because people are idiosyncratic and unpredictable and you know what one person needs isn't what another person's going to need so that whole concept of what is a hospice is somebody who travels alongside you and supports and gives whatever is needed is the one we need to stick with because what might be needed at any one time or from any one individual over here is completely different to what's needed over there and we need to try and fulfill all of those because what one person needs to stay at home might be completely different to what another person does and and you know if I look back over the time um, that I've been in Cornwall there are some hilarious stories about how people manage to stay at home so so I went and saw a, a young man in his 20s who was a son of a farmer who was um, had a brain tumour and they were struggling to to wash him and it was taking ages for people to come and think about adapting their bathroom or whatever and I went to, to do a visit on the farm and I went in and his mum said we don't need them anymore because we've solved the problem and I said have you done that and she said oh she said we've got this paddling pool and we have it down and then we roll him in on a on a on, a, on an office chair and we hose him down with some of the stuff that we've got from the farmyard and he's oh, no, the and, and, and I thought that was pretty Heath Robinson but they were happy with that but that that pales into insignificance with my best story which wasn't actually me that did a visit it was somebody else but it was an old guy on a farm in the back of beyond in old Cornwall 
and he'd gone off his legs properly with his cancer which meant that he couldn't use his legs he couldn't walk and he couldn't get up and down stairs and there was there was stuff going on that he needed an assessment for a stair lift and by the time the person went round to do the assessment for the stair lift the family said we've solved the problem ourselves and the person who was doing the assessment said well what have you done and they took her into the living room because uh, it was a big old-fashioned manor farmhouse and in the living room was a forklift truck with a chair strapped to it and there was a hole in the ceiling and they were just pushing it <laughs> on the forklift truck now that's suited that family now. But if you think about how things have changed, nobody would be happy to let that happen now in no. terms of health and safety. But the, the value of that story is is that, you know, we, we, we've become very risk-averse in healthcare and what we should be doing is supporting people in the risks that they assess and are prepared to take for themselves. And so if somebody wants to stay at home and it looks less than perfect from a professional point of view, that's not a reason for them not to be at home as long as they've been informed as long as we've talked them through that and I think the role of the hospice is to support people to make informed choices that are right for them and do you know I have a classic example of why I think that your your conversations and uh, and that need to make it easier for people was uh, the lovely lady Sarah we made a film with her oh yes and uh, she told me this brilliant story of how she uh, one Christmas she said to the family I'm really sorry but I can't stand the smell of cooking oh that was me I went and did and a you. domiciliary visit <laughs> this is and, a brilliant story <laughs> and I went and did a domiciliary visit and she said and I don't know what's going to happen because I can't smell I can't bear the smell of cooking in the house and she was in her 40s and dying and we'd been looking after her for a long time and she'd got two teenage children and a wonderful husband and, and they just looked at me and said what are we going to do because we want a Christmas dinner and I said have you got a barbecue and they went yep and he said oh yes I'll barbecue the turkey <laughs> just like that as he did yeah. and you just kind of think that's that's what and yes she was a fantastic person and, and she, she was wonderful because she did stories for us but lots of different people from the hospice went and saw her at home and supported her at home and, and supported her mum and supported that family and it was a real team effort. And had those amazing conversations. You know, oh yes. And, and my, when my dad was dying, not in a hospice, it was the conversations I had here that made the whole journey so much better even to the point where I was able to say to the family, we can laugh, you know. Oh, yes. We can tell stories, oh, yeah. you know, with Dad in the room here, yeah. uh, and we can laugh and joke. We don't have to sit round him like a Victorian family, wringing no. our hands. Um, and and that was, it was you that told us that. Told oh, that. and, and, and Make sure people want to hear real life going on around, so so it's nice. I mean, my mum my mom died in St Julia's, and it was lovely sitting in a room looking out at the daffodils, and she was dying, and people were being really kind of lovely and, and supportive, but sympathetic and empathetic and all of those things as they came. In and, out. and then what you could hear going on outside the room was the hoover going and the phone rang and somebody saying it's for you we're so and so and and what you've got is a sense of life going but but life going on and that's really important the worst circle death i've done <laughs> was was when i this is a funny story which relates to st julia's so so um what there is 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 a very interesting alternative community in west cornwall and um i was looking after a lady who was a witch 
and um, she came in and she had various problems um, and the solution that was offered was that this lady needed an infusion of something so I needed to put a cannula in her and infuse something that was the best advice available at the time to, to relieve her dis distresses and um, and I went into the biggest room that was then on the ground floor of St Michael's Hospital and there were there were kind of about 15 people all stood around the bed holding hands and I came in and said I've just come to ask whether I could and, and they said um, well we'll just have to think about whether you can break the circle so then I started sweating a bit thinking oh no I've got to break the circle of witches and warlocks and so then they agreed I could break the circle and I was allowed to th break through the circle and talk to the witch in the bed and she agreed to the treatment and then I went away and got what I needed and then I came back and they all stood around in a circle and and watched while I did this and and I had this sense of kind of whatever it was that was very important to them still going on around me and it was very powerful and I went home and, I, and at that stage I had a, a kind of four or five year old boy and, and, and they said well, what have you been doing today and, and you can't break confidences but he said oh I said oh, I'm looking after a, a, a witch in in the hospice at the moment and, and she's a friendly witch she's a white witch so that's okay and a bit later on I said and all her witches and warlock compatriots were in as well and my son looked at me and he said you're not going to let her die are you and I said well she might die because that's what's happening and then you went and do the witches know where we live and he goes oh bless him fair point exactly exactly but, but, but things are very different and, and what the hospice allows is for is for different cultures to be the support so kind of we've never had a problem with people um, who are in the hospice bringing their own support in yeah. apart from another time which again was quite a few years ago now where you know, people can have Reiki massage and, and complementary therapies and bring supporting practitioners in and look after them if they like. But somebody would come in and done an assessment. Again, it was at St. Julia's. And as they went, they said, well, I'll be back tomorrow. And I was just sitting in the office and saying to the nurses, oh, what's going on? And they said, oh, it's a head tapper. And they were going to come back and drill a hole in the skull of the person. And I went, ah, oh, I think we might have a view on that. <laughs> being done on the premises if somebody wants it they could go out and have it oh. but um, not maybe in mm -hmm. and, and so the range of what we can support has to always be thought about of course what if, if I don't want this to sound like I'm pre-writing your eulogy you're only retiring but what what do you look back on and feel most proud of um I think when I go from go from this organisation after 27 years, I will go with my head held high. And what I will be most proud of is the fact that we have two fantastic units giving fantastic care, supported by staff who are amazing at what they do in their own individual fields, um, but amazing in how they support each other and, and that what we do is recognised and valued by so many people and we just look at the volunteers that come and support us, look at the people who do things to raise money to keep us able to do what it is that we're, we're doing. So um, 
yes, I'm proud of what I've done as individually as a doctor, but I'm more proud of what we've done as an organisation, which has involved lots of other very skillful, more skillful people than me in lots of fields. And it's the knitting together of all of those things that's important. And how would you like to be remembered? Because you are um, <laughs> fond, sounding more fondly. and more like I'm right yes, fondly good. <laughs> Not like a um, hole in the head, we're glad she's gone. You're part of the material of this charity. You've been here so long and you've seen it develop so much. And, and there are still there are still people here who've been here longer than me and and what's important is not that the history holds something back and stops it from evolving and developing but that things that have been learned so you know the definition of insanity is not to not to learn from previous experience so there's a role isn't there for for previous experience to be aired and then people make the right decision at the right time in the future and so for me um I, yes, I am part of the fabric and I can sit in meetings and I am probably one of the few people who go, oh yeah, we've already done that once and I know where it is and, and, and I'm about to spend quite a long time trying to download all it is that people think that they need to know from me and I've said and I'll be on the end of a phone and I'm not gone forever and if you, you, you know, you need to ask me, you can and that's all right. But my nervousness is about what gets lost in terms of organisational knowledge that's good. Mm. And, and that sense of, you know, yes, it's different now to how it was. And, yeah, there are some things that on some days don't feel quite right to people. But actually, you know, overall, this is massively better than it was. And the direction of travel is... And you just need that sense of perspective. I know we're always saying yeah, no one in any charity has got a crystal ball. But where do you think things are going? I mean, can you look into the next five years, 15 years? So, so where I think it, it'll go and where I hope it'll go, I hope coincide. Um, so I think that, that, that the only way forward is for people to work collaboratively now as organisations. Um, and I think that what needs to happen is that they work collaboratively to meet patient need, not individual organisational need. Um, and so if that is, if patient need is what drives it, then what we're looking at is um, care that is delivered at home or as close to home as possible um, with some emergency intensive facilities that support when people can't be at home, but then get them back to where they want to be as quickly as possible. So I don't know how many hospice beds will be running. Um, That'll depend on how much is raised, but it'll also depend on how much is needed and how much is wanted. And those are different things. Um, and I think the the increasing ask will be for people to stay at home. So what we've already started doing in terms of developing other services will be crucial. There's been some really interesting research done that shows that if most of us want to die at home, what is it that enables people to die at home? And the the research is showing that although we deliver patient-centred care, what matters most if somebody wants to die at home is the support that's given to the main carer. Because if you haven't got a network and you haven't got that support, you won't stay at home because you can't. So although the patient should be in the middle of the circle, 
the attention should be just as equally put on what the main carer needs and what the main carer needs is a network of support most of it will be informal and that's the support that makes the most difference but there will be formal support and and the hospice experience and role in terms of supporting volunteers using people innovatively people being prepared to go off piece do things slightly differently um, would I think lend itself to supporting networks of people who aren't professionals but will help people to be where they want to be. Which is what you, Gina, I'm pointing now, have been very much about, haven't you? We've begun yeah. that journey, I think. I, I think it is. I think it, it's definitely the way for the hospice to go. And it's it's not about the hospice doing it all on its own. As, yeah. as Debbie said, it's about, it's about working together. And, you know, absolutely... If, if those family or if that carer is not looked after, then actually, you know, people's wishes aren't met. So I think it's really important that we, we consider that too. And so things that we might not have done at certain times over our history while I've been in this organisation, because we haven't been able to afford to and we've trimmed to the bare bones of what a service looks like, might be things that we ought to be paying increasing attention and putting increasing resource into. So once upon a time, the hospices offered respite. Then they didn't offer respite because one, it wasn't equitable, but two, there wasn't enough resource. But, but actually, is what's going to be needed to help people be where they want to be respite but is that formally you know come in for a week like they used to do in the olden days when I first started in the hospice or is it respite that enables a wife to go and get her hair done once a week and sit and have a cup of coffee with a mate in town and then come back that's respite care and you know volunteers could go around and do that fascinating and and, and I, I've noticed where carers are becoming more and more a part of Absolutely. our world aren't they yeah, and, yeah. and talking Quite about rightly. the support and hospices have traditionally grown up on the background of a model of what cancer patients need but actually the big demand now is is looking at other areas and if we you know for me I can't know what it will look like but, but actually, over the years, we've done a lot of work with um, the mental health services to look at people who are dying with dementia and supporting them in, in their care setting because the worst thing you can do with somebody with dementia is move them. Um, and, and if you look at all the work that's, that's been done to support people who are beginning to lose mental capability, um, what we might be able to offer is, is, is the way we should be thinking of going. And what those carers don't have is somebody giving them a week off. What they have is lots of different people coming in, you know, maybe two or three times a day to give them an hour where they can just not have to kind of be the eyes and ears of somebody who's, who's, who's lost the ability, but they still care about. Mm. Well, I've I've found it a privilege working um, as part of this charity and with you, and I'm not on the medical side. And um, I think you exonerate, uh, not exonerate, it's not the word. I'm exonerate? No, you don't. don't. <laughs> you personify what I think we're about as the non-clinical person, and that is complete and utter compassion and belief in what we do. So you asked me how I'd like to be remembered and I think that what I would like to be remembered as is capable and kind and, and I think that um, people can be capable but if they're not kind it, it misfires and if you're kind but not capable um, you're, you're using a lot of effort. So for me it, it is about the the compassion, it's about listening, but it's about being kind and it's about being generous to the people you work with and the people you're looking after. 
Well, happy retirement. Absolutely. It will be. We're I've quite jealous, lots. you know. <laughs> I've got lots planned. I bet you have. I bet you have. I've got lots to do. <laughs> well, thank you. And thank you for giving us the time as well. Uh, Dr. Deborah Stevens. Round of applause, I think. Thank you very much. You've been listening to Two Old Chuffs, A Tale of Two Hospices. And if you'd like to involve yourself in the debate, ask questions, uh, simply suggest things that you would like to hear about, do drop us an email. It's communications at cornwallhospice.co.uk. And of course, you can visit the website to find out more at www.cornwallhospicecare.co.uk.